Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Words, glorious words. I remember the first time I heard a Michael Rosen poem when my friend Simon stood up in our primary school classroom in the 1980s and read Eddie and the Chocolate Cake out to our class. I have a clear memory of filling up with wonder right there in Mrs Gage's classroom. How could a poem be so funny and make me feel like real people were getting told off for being naughty? Simon's delivery was brilliant. It was the beginning of a lifetime of being spellbound by the power of words. And as an English teacher, I got as much of Michael's poetry into my classroom as possible. I can't think of anyone I'd like to talk to more about talking than Michael Rosen. And I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast today. Michael, thank you for coming. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, I'd love to know a bit more about your adventures with languages and language. How did you realise and when did you realise that words mattered so much to you? I guess almost from the time I was born. Now, I, I don't mean that facetiously. I just mean that my parents were very, very interested in language. Um, they both came from homes that were bilingual. So they spoke at home English and Yiddish, this language of uh, Eastern European Jews. And so they themselves were immersed in it. In fact, whenever they talked about their own childhoods, they said it wasn't only English and Yiddish, but when they went to the local library, they came from the East End of London, they would hear Polish and Russian and German, which is slightly different from Yiddish, um, and they would hear these, these languages. And so I remember growing up uh, hearing Yiddish words, not knowing whether they were English words or Yiddish words, and a lot of French as well, because we went to France, and my dad uh, was very good at French, my mum, okay. Um, and uh, we went to Germany as well, and so I can remember them speaking German. So in that sense, I, the idea of languages was sort of in my head. My dad would go off on one talking bits of Latin as well because he had done Latin at university. Um, <laughs> so if you like, I was immersed in all that idea, but my dad was actually, in the end, a professor, long one, this, of language and literature in education and so he was often writing about this stuff and my dad couldn't bear to be more than about four feet away from the kitchen table and so right. even when he was studying he was sitting there with his legs crossed and his notes for his MA and his PhD or whatever he was doing um, and sort of shouting stuff out half in English and half in Yiddish about what he had just discovered <laughs> so you'd have like a mad situation in which you would be talking about some very posh linguist or other some deep linguist and you'd say the man's talking kvatch, he's sugar, which is a way of saying kvatch is German rather than Yiddish, meaning nonsense, and sugar means crazy. Words I knew. Um, so Just a real mixture. A absolute mixture. Um, and it was very funny as well. I mean, I have to say that. So it didn't sound sort of pompous or anything. Mm. I mean, if I just give you an example, my mum bursting into our bedroom, that's me and my brother, bursting into the bedroom and saying, this place is a Mischadamonk. I remember saying to her, what's a mission among? She said, well, this place, and walked out. <laughs> so that was, a, you know, it's just, it would be like that. Or she'd say, well, you know, just you going out the house, she might say, well, you don't want to look like a schloch. And you say, well, what's a schloch? And she said, well, what you don't want to look like. <laughs> so all these explanations for words were kind of quite odd. Mm. And how about this one? We, we were in Germany in 1957, and I'd always got the idea that my dad could speak what's called Hochdeutsch, that sort of posh German. Mm. 
and that he could speak that because he had been stationed in Germany at the end of the war and he would sing German songs. He knew quite a few German songs. My mum, by and large, didn't, didn't speak any, any German like that, you see. And then we were sitting in a cafe on the first day we were there and my mum looked up and said, I understand every word that they're saying. Wow. And me and my brother, I'm 11, my brother's 15, and we said, well, what? How come? And she said, well, my first language was Yiddish. So Yiddish is like a sort of old German dialect with bits of Hebrew and Slavonic, Slavonic mm. languages in it. And so I remember thinking, wow, mum's got a whole secret kind of space in her head where stuff goes on in that language or something. Mm. I mean, it's very hard. You look at your mum who you think you know as an 11-year-old. Yeah, I have some mum up. I know exactly what all, all, the, all the parts of her life. And then there was suddenly this time in her life that we didn't know about and she could understand the waiter coming up or people sitting in the cafe saying noch ein glas wein bitte and she understood it all i thought wow that's amazing yeah so your fascination grew how did language and words become your bread and butter then ah well it was a bit of a zigzag actually because i made a fatal mistake when i was um 16 hmm. that's to say i'd i'd studied for what we used to call o level uh french german and latin Yes, so you could do this three-language pathway with the idea that you would go into the sixth form, if you were good enough, and do at least one language. And that was my plan. I was going to do English, French and history in the sixth form. Right. But the terrible mistake I made was to say to my mum and dad at some point, either just before I did my O-levels or just after it, and I said, you know, I quite liked doing biology. This right. was a terrible mistake because, if I put it politely, my parents suffered from what you might call immigrantitis. Right. And immigrantitis means that the one hope that you might have for your child is that they might become a doctor. Right. So that word, biology, just translated into my son, a doctor. <laughs> and so they kind of came up to me and went, Biology? And I was going, yeah, no, I quite like some of that stuff, you know, geraniums and rats and earthworms and stuff like that. <laughs> and they went, we've got a friend. And next minute I was schlepped, as you'd say in Yiddish, that means dragged off, sort of schlepped off to go and see their great friend, Dr Carter. Mm -hmm. And um, next minute I was on a, a kind of treadmill uh, where I was going to do arts A-levels and then I was going to do like the equivalent of A-level sciences mm. at um, the Middlesex Hospital Medical School. And I made several efforts to get off these tracks and my father refused each time. Mum sort of looked out the window and pretended the conversation wasn't happening. Uh, it was all very stereotypical, very, mm. very stereotypical, wasn't it? Anyway, but the old man said, no, 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 you're not changing, you're not changing. And in those days, you sort of had to do what your parents did. Well, apart from anything else, they were supporting you, so you didn't have much choice, really. So you were a bit sort of enslaved to them. Um, <laughs> uh, and in the end, I yes, I was able to convince them. So I switched track. By then I was at Oxford University and I switched from doing what I'd done by then, a year of science uh, A-levels and a year of medicine. Mm -hmm. And really I was beginning to go a bit nuts actually when I look back at it. And I switched to doing English language and literature at Oxford University. Right. And when you do that at Oxford in the 1960s, that meant that you had to do a lot of Anglo-Saxon. Oh, yeah. Anglo-Saxon. What? That sort of thing. I probably haven't even pronounced that right. Uh, that's the first line of Beowulf, the great epic. Anyway, so I was on to another language, really, because it's not, though it's 
the origins of English. It doesn't sound much like English, as you can hear. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was another language that came into my ears. So I was getting pretty interested in language and languages mm. by then. Yeah, and how did you start with the poetry? Did you write poetry whilst you were doing the medical track? And that started earlier. Mm. I'd, I'd got the idea that poems were kind of great places to go mm. when I was doing English literature O-level and also reading a huge amount. I was a pretty avid reader mm -hmm. and going to plays a lot, going to the theatre. And um, I can remember a couple of switch-on moments. One was reading, this is going to sound so kind of pretentious and sort of like head down, but anyway, never mind. So I was reading James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is amazing because at the beginning when he's a baby, it's sort of written in baby talk, and as he gets older the language becomes bit yeah. by bit more sophisticated. So in a way, the language, the way it's told, tells you about uh, the kind of consciousness of the person uh, speaking or writing. So I thought that was magic. And mm. so I experimented with writing stuff about my childhood in the voice of a child. Oh. So I remember writing a, a thing about being on the beach and being hot, but it wasn't in sentences. It was in this sort of stream of consciousness thing, beach, hot, sun, sky, see what I mean, uh, kind of yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was the first thing. And then also for O-Level, we had to do uh, some of D.H. Lawrence's poems, which are called things like bat, moth, yeah. no, not moth, bat, snake, yeah. man and bat. And I just thought these were brilliant uh, because I don't think I'd ever read anything where somebody writes about something that happens to them simultaneously, both at the same time, of being in the thing and commenting on the thing. I always think of it when I describe it to school students. It's as if you're walking along by the side of the swimming pool and you can see yourself swimming. Right. So you, you can describe what it's like in the pool. I'm swimming along and it's really cold. But then you switch and you say... My my arms were tired. Mm. So you change the, the, the point of view, you would say, in movies. You'd say you change the POV. So you switch from being in and outside. So you observe yourself. And D.H. Lawrence does that brilliantly in Snake and Man and Bat in particular and mm. Bat. And they're in those three poems. And you you kind of move between these two places in which one minute he's fighting against... Uh, well, he, he throws something at the snake and then he despises himself for having thrown it. Uh, I have through. something to expiate. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah, ex exactly that. And then with the man and bat, he again, he's disgusted that he's he sort of trapped the bat and then lets it out, I think, into the air in, in Italy. Um, and I thought, wow, I'd, that's amazing. And so... You know, obviously, as teenagers, we get switched on by all sorts of different things. Mm. Uh, I'm often very interested in people like David Bowie or, or in fact, the Beatles or the Stones or whatever and find sort of their switch-on moments were sort of 14, 15, 16 when they heard a kind of music or they um, heard a verse in a song and thought, mm. God, I could do that. Mm. Well, as it happens, I'm not very musical. So though I was listening to a huge amount of folk music and blues in particular uh, and some jazz, uh, what sort of made, what did the switch on button were these, well, what we net, what I now know is what you'd call modernist writing. Right. It kind of made sense to me. Now, I don't know why I can't excavate that. Mm. Why, why would that any more than, I don't know, something else, but um, so that's what that's switched on. That's when you started writing. Then. Yeah. Okay. So that's before the, <laughs> before the medical stuff and uh, before I was doing English. And in fact, I was in digs um, and it was so funny 
that I did write a play about the the digs. So I was actually writing other stuff while I was doing this is while I was studying that I was with these the medical another medical student and a bloke who I don't know just he kept going on about how he was going to be a millionaire because he had designed some sunglasses <laughs> and so the combination of a guy who was like bunking off medical school and um, as high was to a certain extent um, and this guy was going to be a millionaire it, it was very funny so anyway I wrote a play about that when I was about 18 nine, mm. no 19. Amazing so have you got any advice for a budding young wordsmith? So someone maybe in primary school or early teens. I think the key thing is to read. And whenever I see other people who are asked this, they, they all say the same. There's other writers, children's writers or adult writers. And it, it's kind of obvious, but not. Because but, the thing is, we write with what we read mm -hmm. because the language that we read with is like a set of tools, if you like, that are in your head. Yeah. Now, you can use the words, obviously, that we speak with, and there's a certain kind of, and this is a contradiction in terms, oral writing that comes up through folk traditions and other traditions. But by and large, if you're going to sit down and write a novel, a play, a poem, then these are very written forms, mm. and the shapes of them and the what you might call a musician would call the cadence and the sequencing of them so just as musicians will talk about like, you know, three or four chords that go together in a certain way and they go, oh, God, that bit where Miles Davis goes, da-da, do-da-da-da-da-da-da, or something like that. And they go, yeah. oh, I love that. I'm going to do a little riff like that. And they'll take it and adapt it. Well, in a way, it's like that with writing that you hear these riffs or read these riffs and combination of both. And you go, oh, I could play around with that. And you pile in your own experiences and things that people say and so on and your writing comes out of it so that's at one level but mm -hmm. the other level is is that in order to write plots for stories or in order to uh, put together a set of things about maybe something that happened to you the more you read the better you have a sense of a shape of a whole piece mm -hmm. so it's not only these little cadences and riffs if you like a little way in which you can put words together um, but also the shape of a whole piece. And so you can only get that from reading and reading and reading and reading. So I've seen on Twitter, for example, someone like Philip Pullman, uh, SF Side, wrote a book called uh, Varjak Poor and others, and they always say, I can see them saying to teachers, you know, read, read, read. Mm -hmm. So basically reading is a door to many things, but one door it is, is to being able to write and writing confidently. Mm. Reading is is a is a is a real key to that. Great. So can anybody be a poet then if they read and they and they want to? Yeah, no, I mean there's and there's several ways of being a poet. So I've I've been mentioning as you were a kind of folk tradition, you can create poems orally, right? Because we have this power. There's been oral poetry down through the years. So, you know, I do a little poem that goes, something's drastic, something's drastic. My nose is made of plastic. Something's drastic, something's drastic. My ears are elastic. Something's drastic, something's drastic. We're a fan. And all the kids join in. Tastic. Now, that's very oral. You don't need to go via a kind of written form. 
And I say to teachers, you see, you take that, some things drastic, some, that's like rhythm and bass. Mm -hmm. It's just the same, right? So what we have with words is that we can do the bass because we have a bass note in our voice, but also it gives you the rhythm. So some things drastic. Well, you can do that with anything. So if you take my name, Michael Rosen, you can turn that into rhythm and bass. Michael Rosen, Michael Rosen. And then over the top... You can say anything you want. I've got blue eyes, my cool rose, like that. So you can always create oral poetry. Mm. And, you know, we have call and response things that have run back. If you go back in folk literature for a thousand years, you've got call and response. Where are we going? I don't know. Why are we going? I don't know. And you just get these call and response things. So you don't have to go via the written form. And it's very good fun, particularly with young children, to do oral things. So if you take my book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, uh, it's not my book, I shouldn't say that, Helen Oxenbridge and my book, based on a folk rhyme in itself, uh, well, there's a picture of a bear on the last page and the bear is quite mysterious. The bear's wandering off, looking kind of a bit disconsolate, a little bit fed up. Well, children are often quite interested in that and they say to me, what's the bear thinking? And I say, well, what do you think? And then they tell me, and they might say things, well, he wanted to play. Mm-hmm or he's lonely. And so you can create an oral poem out of that. I say, you be the bear. Mm -hmm. Now you tell me, what are you thinking? And they say, I'm lonely. Right, so now you've got a little beginning of a shape. So you say, I'm lonely. And the next kid says, I only wanted to play. So now we've got, I'm lonely. I only wanted to play. And then you say, well, can you think of a chorus? Can we have something that we're going to say every so often? Just, it could be anything like, I'm the bear. So suddenly we've got, I'm lonely. I'm a bear. I only wanted to play. I'm a bear. And then just within a matter of just a few moments with a, with a class of maybe three-year-olds, four-year-olds even, or with much older ones, you can create an oral poem. So you've got different ways, you know. I mean, it is the, the miracle of words and language is that we never have to be held in a box mm -hmm. and say, oh, well, there's only one way to do things. And uh, I'm always disconcerted when in education it implies that now you've got to write like this, now you've got to write like that. Um, it isn't true. It's, a very, it's, it's very, very flexible. And you only just have to look across books and poems and stories and things on the telly and, and indeed popular music. I mean, popular music, there's just wonderful different experimentations that go on at all sorts of different levels with popular music. You take someone like Adele, who's writing what in other, in other terms would be called confessional poetry if we're being pompous and put our literary hats on. These are monologues mm -hmm. about her life. Well, that's a fantastic form for teenagers. Yeah. It's fantastic. You know, they're, they're, they're full of themselves and they want to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow, I'm madly in love, that boy doesn't like me, that girl hates me, all this stuff. Well, it's ideal for that form, what you might call either confessional or um, dramatic monologue. Yeah. Uh, all right, Adele's not, people are not interested in her so much these days. But the point is, you know, five, whatever it was, five, six, seven, eight years ago, that was a great model that you could say working with teenagers and say, well, you don't have to make up a tune. Just look at these lyrics. Look at these wonderful phrases like chasing pavements. You know, what a brilliant mm -hmm. idea yeah. that when you're fed up, you chase pavements. And you say, well, that's great about writing because you don't have to write something. That you, you can't chase a pavement. The pavement's there. Mm -hmm. But we know what it means. It means pounding along the pavement because you're so fed up and upset. And so if you're working with teenagers, you can show them things like that. But it's another way of reading, really, of course, is you're saying, without saying so, it's like kind of a nudge, mm. nudge, wink, wink, without saying so. You say, look at these lyrics. 
or you take somebody like Stormzy or another guy like Loyal Karna who writes about his life and you can show them the lyrics, which I say is a form of reading, and then you say, well, go on, you can do that. Because children love playing with words. David Crystal in a previous episode was saying that, you know, really young children, they love sounds and words and, you know, just mucking about with those things. And so, um, yeah, they like to play with them, don't they? Well, I was watching a child on the way here, actually. It was on the tube. Um, one of those slightly sad things that the mother had pushed the uh, the buggy onto the onto the train onto the tube train, and instead of face to face with her child, she was behind him. So the only thing he could only, he was looking at strangers. Mm. Now at first he didn't mind, and I could see and could hear he was doing what David Crystal and indeed Noam Chomsky's wife, who worked very hard on looking at the way in which we learn language and develop language, and they've come up with the word babble. It's called babble, but that's not meant to be pejorative. So when you look at one-year-olds, two-year-olds, and even three-year-olds, what are they doing? And you, if you watch them and listen to them, particularly as they're going to sleep, but this little boy was doing the same thing, he was experimenting with the sound and the feel of words in his mouth. Mm -hmm. So he was going... So I think he was about 18 months, right? Yeah. And this was giving him a lot of fun and he was laughing. Mm. So he was basically telling... Not exactly telling himself jokes, but he was finding it funny, the sounds that he was making, because at this point in his development, language is a very physical thing. Mm. He's discovered that when you do things with your tongue and teeth and lips... It has an effect on other people. If you go more, 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 then who knows? You might get some more porridge. And then if you go wah like that, who knows? Someone might pick you up, which is always nice. So anyway, I watched him do this, and then he's looking at these people's faces, and then there was a sort of little panic on his face because he wondered where his mum was right. because she's behind him. And so then he did go wah like that, and she then said there, there, and reassured mm -hmm. him. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? There's a whole language thing that he's discovering through a mixture of play and experiment, and some of it's fun. And then when he has a switch in emotions, he, he knows a noise to make that will reassure him that he's not detached from his mother, but that he can force the reattachment of his mother with this noise that he's learned to make. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't really crying. It was just giving the good old gurn, you know, wow, that we know as parents. And it worked, you know. Um, mind you, I think the mum could have short-circuited by simply turning the buggy round. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other ball game about whether we look at our children or not. That's right. Is there a point where they get less interested in playing with words? Yes. I mean, it's very. you have to be a bit careful about generalising. But if you think, when you're under five... Language, this thing that you're discovering, you can change things, you can make people do things, you can get the sense that you can get what you want or not get what you want, all this stuff. Words, language, is attached to your body, mm. right? So that's where it is, that's where it exists. It's in your mouth, you can wave your hands about in rhythm to what you say. If you watch a young child... Uh, I watched a young child in, in Brighton, it was, and um, there was a funny little, um, I'm going to use the word dome, actually, because you've got the dome of Brighton, but a funny little dome on the pavement. Um, I think it was a sort of sculpture, and the child was running round and round the dome and feeling the fact that, you know, one leg's longer than another and, and that you could go over the top of it and round and round, and she had a little song. She had invented a song, the round and round song, so she was running round and round, going roundy, 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 and experimenting. Now, 
I thought about that afterwards, and she's doing several things at the same time. She's enjoying the feel of this thing that's a bit odd, a kind of dome on the pavement. So she's got that feeling, but then she's inventing something to do with the language apparatus, that's mm -hmm. her chest, her throat, her mouth, and all the bits in your mouth, that goes with the rhythm of her running. So all this is interconnected. You've got to see it as a whole thing, the fun of it and waving her arms about and her mum being pleased that she was doing it and all that. Now, there you might say, well, what's the language? Well, the language is inseparable. It's connected to the body. The round and round goes with the rhythm of her running and so on. Now let's take the other extreme and you come to someone like me. I'm sort of academic. I teach at uh, Goldsmiths, uh, University of London, and there's books, loads of books. Now, where are the words? The answer is they're on a page. They're just connected to bits of ink and paper, or they're on the screen, they're electrical impulses. So this is a, a separation that we've invented, this separation of the written language from the spoken. So the problem in education is that it, you must imagine for five and six-year-olds at any rate, that it must all be a bit bewildering, that you have this potent thing, this potent method of communication and expression that's been going, doing a good job for you from the age of naught to five and six, and suddenly you've got this really clumsy, turgid, slow thing called writing. It takes yeah. ages to write, I am happy, or the dog went out the room. It just takes ages and ages. And then when you're learning to read and if you're whatever method you're learning to read, it just takes hours just to get the idea that Biff and Chips went for a walk. It just mm. takes you hours and hours. Why bother with it? Well, it was quite a natural, bodily, whole, holistic process. Exactly. Mm. So this is not, I'm not being anti-writing. I mean, obviously, I, I, I make my living from it. I love it. But we shouldn't underestimate what a huge leap it is. Mm. And also that for many people, it is never very satisfactory. Mm. We always talk about writing as if, you know, it's like perfect and brilliant. But what do we do? We come in in the evening and we're tired. We turn on the telly or Netflix or whatever it is. And though it's been written, they're secret. The, the script writers, they're, they're, you can't see them. Yeah. So we watch what looks like an oral medium. Mm -hmm. We don't, by and large, not many people do it come in of an evening and go, Phew, I'm really shattered, now I'm going to sit down and read a book for three hours. I mean, some people do, of course, great, good luck to them. But by and large, people immerse themselves in oral forms or they listen to music, they put on some music, which of course is another whole thing, but if it's songs, then again, that's oral. So we've got to always remember that writing for many people, whether you're writing it or reading it, is actually quite low down on the list of of things that make you feel good. Yeah, enjoyable en crafting with language. Exactly, or enjoying the craft of language by reading it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it is a minority pursuit. Mm. So when you say, do, do children get sort of put off? Well, yes, but it's no surprise, really. Mm. Um, and then when do you, if you say, well, do they stop playing? Well, yes, because it, it doesn't seem to be very easy to play with language on the page. I it mean... It becomes deadly serious stuff. It's deadly serious, mm. and also it is difficult to play with it if what you're told is that you can't play because you've got stuff to do. And we can talk about that later if you like, but the point is, 
Um, there are ways of playing with language on the page. I mean, you know, people invented something called concrete poetry where, you know, you can write the word apple a hundred times in the shape of an apple. Right. right. You can use a stencil or you can draw an apple within pencil. You write apple, apple, apple inside the very lightly drawn shape of an apple. Then you rub that bit out. You've written your apples in. And then that's a nice game. You've made an apple out of the word apple many times. And, of course, advertising uses this sort of stuff all the time. But... Um, you know, there are plenty of ways of playing with language on the page, but uh, it tends to be hidden away in art galleries and rather erudite books. But uh, for me, I just think it's, it's very important and it's lovely to do. And, you know, if you go back to um, the what are called the post-impressionists, you go back to Picasso and Brack, um, what did they do? They painted a guitar and then stuck on a bit of newspaper that said Le Figaro or new, name of a newspaper. And it was like the idea that, you could mix up, you don't have to be real, you can mix up a picture of something with something you might be reading. Mm -hmm. So you could say, well, that's like a way of life. So they invented montage and collage. Well, that's another lovely way to play with language. You just cut up newspapers. Mm. And it's, it's something you can do with three-year-olds. It's something you can do with 103-year-olds. It's just very, very simple and good fun. And you can take pictures or you can draw as well. You don't have to obey any rules and say, well, how could I tell a story using bits out of magazines and paper, newspapers and writing and pictures and photos and so on, and you can do that. Um, so that's a way of playing with the written word, but it's um, if some people don't know. They haven't been given permission to. I mean, looking behind you, you see, there's a lovely neon sign that says on air, mm -hmm. and each time I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, well, it's kind of funny because, like, we know we're on air, but there's this sort of neon sign saying <laughs> on air. And I'm just thinking, well, wouldn't it be fun with kids in a classroom or so anywhere that, you know, if you could light up words? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just it just seems so sort of funny saying, like, you know, if it said tea time and you could sort of switch it on yeah. in some way or another. And, I mean, you can do in a way because you could just sort of, if you invented a tea time where you weren't allowed to speak but you could only cut out words out of the newspaper, you could do that, couldn't you? That would be funny. And so you'd say, like, you know, breakfast and hold it up. And what <laughs> else is it? But you mustn't say it because you've invented that we can't speak, you know. Anyway. So you've said the word fun or funny about 15 times there. Now, I really appreciate how much laughter there is in your work. That's what first switched me on to words. Are we just, you know, you, you're quite silly, if you don't mind me saying, and you do bring a lot of silliness in and... Um, should we maybe, you know, stop taking words so seriously? Can we get a bit more silliness back into poetry? Or does it have to be deadly serious? Uh, it, well, no, certainly poetry doesn't have to be deadly serious, um, nor indeed fiction or anything, and it can be fun. And then also the fun stuff can be serious in the sense that you can explore all sorts of absurdities and things through humour. I mean, when I was in the sixth form, I studied a book called Candide by Voltaire, and this, I thought, was a hysterically funny book, but it's deadly, deadly serious. Mm. So this is the story, the, the idea of a, an innocent aristocrat who doesn't know what, what's going on in the world and he keeps finding out things and going, oh, I didn't realise that. <laughs> and it's what's known in French as the idiot savant, the knowing idiot. And I remember thinking, how could you be funny and so serious about what were the kind of major problems of the day, which was, uh, for example, that people said when the awful earthquake of Lisbon 
happened that somehow this was all in the end for the best of all possible worlds. And of course, it's, this is satire. He was taking the mickey out of this philosophy that said, oh, well, if hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people are killed, it doesn't matter because somewhere or other it's all in God's design, so it doesn't matter. And so there's laughter in the book. And that had quite a profound effect on me, actually. Mm. And the other thing that had a big effect on me was going to see Beyond the Fringe. This may not mean much to people listening, but this was when Jonathan Miller, Dudley Moore, Peter Cook and Alan Bennett devised a set of what we would now say sketches, and they look quite familiar to us now, uh, but they were pioneers. And they had a theatre show that started off at the Edinburgh Festival and they were just students. And um, they came and then put it on in London. And I went a couple of times and bought the... LP, the long playing record of it. And I remember thinking, this is so funny and so clever. And yet it was also deadly serious. I mean, just take one example. Um, they, one of their sketches was sort of like a Mickey take of war films. So if you think I was born in 1946, my first experiences uh, outside of children's films of going to the cinema was seeing war films mm. where we had Kenneth Moore um, and others portraying the huge heroism, undoubted, uh, of the Brits during the war, during the Second World War. How could you take the mickey out of this? This is deadly serious. And somehow or another in these sketches, somebody like Peter Cook, who kind of had this, could put on this kind of posh British voice. And it was hysterically funny, but also was a way of puncturing some of the pomposity that surrounded Britain's role in the Second World War. Um, and I remember discovering that you could be silly, if you like, I was about 14 probably, but also deadly serious. But saying that, at the same time, you can be silly by exploring the sound and shape of words. You know, you can do something. So if I might randomly notice that the word sticker and the word ticket have a similar sound to them, because we have this odd thing in language where words that really have not much to do with each other can have similar sounds, mm. and anybody can think of it. I mean, you know, I always thought that Qatar, I'm looking at one over there, by the way, that Qatar, which I've got at the moment in my nose, is actually a bit like guitar. Mm -hmm. So there's a guitar over there and I've got Qatar. Well, the moment you notice things like that, it starts getting funny and you start thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to play my Qatar <laughs> and then I'm just going to play the Qatar down, 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 and, and suddenly you've got, a joke about the fact that we've invented language, but it's arbitrary, it's very odd. Why would Qatar sound like guitar? So I took those words, sticker and ticket, and I said, uh, he had a little sticker and he had a little ticket, and he took the little sticker and he stuck it to the ticket. Now, he hasn't got a sticker and he hasn't got a ticket. He's got a bit of both, which he calls a little sticket. Um, so that was a, just because I found those words and they sounded like it, and then I thought, well, you can stick stickers to tickets. And, in fact, my Post-its in my pocket sometimes end up stuck to my season ticket. So it did sort of make sense. And then you've got this sort of odd little thing of making up a new word out of old words, which is what Humpty Dumpty does in mm -hmm. um, in, Alice, in one of the Alice in Wonderland books. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy were the borogoves, and the moan wraths outgrabe." And then you get Humpty who then explains how he made up those words um, in, the in the following bit. So I, that's all fun because really when you explore that, you actually explore... I mean, people don't know it, but you're actually going back to some of the origins of language, which mm. are about play and what's called analogy. In other words, you make up a word that sounds a bit like other words in order to say something new. And so we do that 
Uh, we do that all the time. And we borrow words from one area and use it in another. So if you take a word like woke, mm -hmm. you know, I'm woke, he is a woke. I don't know, it's used quite a lot these days. Well, as far as I know, that originally came from African uh, African-Americans talking about being conscious and aware and it was meant in quite a positive way. Hey, he's woke, man. Mm. You know, he knows what's going on. And now it's become a way in which people take mock the fact that people are caring. Right. So it's switched. Now, I might not like that second meaning, but tough. That's the way language works. I just have to take it and in its own way. It's quite inventive. You, you grab a word from one place and use it in another. Here we are in a music studio and we know that musicians' language was, as we say, is very hip. And then... As it came out, we inter musicians were being interviewed. We stole that language, you know, so I'm like of the Beatles era and they started using words like groovy and, and hip and cool and uh, fab and gear and these sort of half Liverpool, half music words. And then suddenly all, we all were. So we all play with language, even if we don't think we are. Because yeah. we borrow and nick words from different places. So that's, that's a way of playing. It seems to be coming through talking as well. So I, I wonder if we maybe need to get more talking back into our classrooms. Ben, Crystal and I in a previous epi episode were talking about oracy and how, you know, we might not know exactly what we want to say, but we can borrow, say, Shakespeare's words or borrow somebody else's words because just saying what is inside us and getting it out uh, in a spoken way can be kind of therapeutic and it's important for our mental health, to be able to express ourselves. Um, what, what's your take about talking and its place in schools? Um, we? Well, I'm in fact part of the Oracy movement. Mm. Uh, so as a kind of technical movement, it actually starts in part from my dear old dad. Uh, my dad was very much involved in, if you might, in those days they talked about it as as talk. So my mum and dad wrote a book called The Language of Primary School Children, much of which is based on talk and the idea that if you're faced with considering your experience or indeed considering uh, a piece of scientific experiment that one of the ways to find out what's going on is for students primary school children or indeed adults to get into pairs and small groups to talk to discover uh, to investigate um, to find out what others don't know as a way of finding out what you don't know so you're sharing your ignorances as well as your knowledges both at the same time mm -hmm. um, so they were part of that and then you had in the 90s something that was called the language in the national curriculum project uh, which had a whole component called the oracy project which my dad was involved in and my stepmother um, so it was, it's kind of in my bloodstream and there is in fact uh, if you like almost like a university school of oracy coming out of cambridge with Robin Alexander and uh, Fiona Main and people like that who've written wonderful books about it. And now here's me as a professor. Uh, one of the terms that I teach is called Children's Literature in Action. And I invite the students to run projects in their schools, because um, they're mostly teachers, uh, where they don't just simply read to the children or ask the children to critique a book, but to look at ways in which children can explore children's literature in my case, but it could be other things, through talk to make transcriptions of the talk and then to analyse the talk and mm -hmm. see what's going on. So I've invented a matrix that helps the students, if you like, analyse what's going on in their talk. So if I take one example, if you're 
reading a story and then you invite the children to say, what does this, this story, that you're, does it remind you, does it make you think of anything that's happened in your life? And then the children start swapping stories. So these stories are analogous to the story that they've just read. So let's say it's Matilda and they know a teacher who's very strict, just like Miss Trunchbull, and they tell a strict teacher story. What's going on there is the child is making an analogy between something that's happened to them and something that Roald Dahl has written about. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, that is the beginnings of abstract thought because what you're doing is saying that is like this, this is like that in this respect. Now, when you think we teach geography and we say, oh, look, there's a cliff and the cliff is uh, getting worn away. What's making it wear away? Well, down the bottom we can see there's some water and then we can see some wind, and then we know in winter there's frost, and that gets inside the cliff, and all this comes under the heading of erosion. So that's abstract thought. That's how we do it in schools. Yeah. We group together similar things, or what we say are similar, and give it a name and try and teach it to children. That's a whole chunk of education is all about that. But in fact, you're doing something very informally. You'll do the same if you sit and chat about a book and swap stories about a book. Mm-hmm. And so you do the same. Now, the easiest way to do that is through talk. It's not the only way because obviously you can write things like that. But it's what we do. If I sit on a bus and listen to people talking about EastEnders last night, quite often they'll talk a bit about EastEnders and then they'll go off on one and talk about their grandmothers or their grandfathers or somebody who's like Phil um, or whatever. And they, they make analogies because what you're doing is basically to use a bit of jargon, you're setting up schema, you're setting up a kind of construct in your head of how the world works. Yeah. And whether the thing you just watch fits in it or doesn't. Yes? So mm -hmm. does Phil behave like somebody you know or not like somebody you know? If it's not, why? So this is actually a form of literary criticism, right? Yeah. And it can be done through talk, can be done through oracy. So I'm very much part of mm. uh, what's called the oracy project and um, uh, there's the Cambridge department and there's also... A school uh, called the uh, or it's, it's called uh, if I can remember uh, Voice Voice Seventeen I think anyway mm -hmm. so there is there are schools now that are using oracy and some of that can be learning how to give speeches others of it can be about how through dialogic learning as it's called through dialogue it won't solve everything but it means that you can take possession of the thing that you're doing whether that's science literature uh, or any other subject. Um, and in fact, my dad always used to quote um, uh, Sir Peter Medower, who was a, a, a physician and also taught medicine, mm -hmm. about how he taught the students to make prognoses uh, through dialogue. Right. And so he was trying to teach student med medical students how to dialogue with themselves if they weren't with another doctor in order to find out what's going on. And I had that very, very experience myself. I had a very strange illness that nobody could diagnose. Uh, and in the end, I ended up in front of um, a kidney specialist. And he started asking me questions. And as he was asking me questions, they were like mad things, like, how did I get there today? And, you know, what did I like for breakfast? And he was staring at me. And then he pushed all the kidney notes to one side and said, no, what you are is hypothyroid, mm. right? So... Just think about what he did then. So I've come in presenting with a kidney complaint mm -hmm. and he's going, that's not 
working. There's something else going on. So he's having a dialogue inside his head. So how does he teach his students? Okay. Mm. So as it happens, his students were there. So he said, hang on, stay where you are and called them in. He called in students. He said, you don't mind, do you? Okay. So he said, okay, you lot. He said, what's he got? I'm leaving the room. I'm coming back in again. In two minutes' time, I want you to tell me what's this bloke got. And that's mm. me. I'm the bloke. So they went out. He went out. And then the students, well, of course, you know what the first thing they said, don't you? They said, what have you got? <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, I said, I'm not allowed to say, see? So they kind of looked at me and sort of muttered to each other. And then he came back in and said, what's he got? And they said, it's kidney failure, sir. You see? And he went bananas. Mm. Because he said, look, you haven't touched the patient. You haven't felt his pulse. You haven't tested his reflexes. You haven't asked him to walk across the room. If you'd done that and talked about it, you'd have found out exactly what he is, which is hypothyroid. So I saw at first hand where oracy gets you. Mm. There was nothing. It was no, no bits of paper. He was inviting them to use their knowledge and talk about it mm. and to use the very things that they had been told to do, take temperatures, feel pulses, feel reflexes, take blood pressures, mm. all the basic stuff. And then as a little group of students to get dialogic, to get use talk mm. and work out what's the matter with Michael Rosen. And, and because they didn't, they didn't diagnose what was wrong with me. Mm. He, because he's obviously been doing it for 40 years, he, the dialogue went on in his head because he's internalised yeah, the dialogue. Internalized yeah. So, you know, he, in a way he was saying exactly what Sir Peter Meadow had said, is that if you have this notion that instead of just taking figures and facts off a page and just doing it in a one-to-one -one relationship, fact, person looks like that, it is, mm -hmm. that if you dialogue, you'll get somewhere. So rather than just simply saying, oh, well, he's turned up at the metabolic unit, so he must have kidney failure, right? Dialogue about it with yourself. Have a look and see, does this fit the pattern? Doesn't fit the pattern. Mm. And you see, it's interrogative, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was that was quite interesting that the Peter Medua uh, thing about dialogue with diagnosis, I think, is very important. I think it's fascinating that you've got science, like the the medical scientists there, interacting with um, the art subjects almost, haven't you? So yeah. You know, you've got to be able to sort of use the skills from both. And I, I you know, I don't believe in separating exactly. these things, but we're quite fixated on STEM as, you know, this is super important, but like the arts... You know, there's much well, it wailing is. about that. That's, Indeed. I mean, I'm of the period mm. of where, you know, people talked about the two cultures. Mm. C.P. Snow, who was a novelist and a scientist, and he said, what is this very strange thing? And he thought that it was a sort of British ailment, actually, <laughs> that somehow or other we had elevated the arts to a point where, you know, in order to be regarded as an intelligent rounded person he probably said man in those days <laughs> uh, but a rounded person then you had to know Wordsworth and Dickens but who cares whether you knew and the example we gave was the second law of thermodynamics and mm. he said you know how many people appear on television and say well the second law of thermodynamics is quite important uh, which actually is a lovely law because it says that everything's going to disorder entropy. So <laughs> it's the law that says that no matter what happens with any experiment or even if you build a house, the tendency ultimately is for the universe to be going, or the earth at any rate, to be going towards disorder uh, or entropy is the word. And uh, everyone talked about this and thought, well, well, yeah, we have got to resolve it because otherwise uh, we don't have essentially a manufacturing base, ha, 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 ha. We don't have technology because 
we don't rate it. We don't think, isn't it incredible that you can build a bridge, mm. which is what the Victorians did. They said, isn't it amazing? You can build a bridge, you can build a railway line, uh, you can invent things that transform your life. And, you know, it is really this, the story of Britain in the 20th and 21st centuries mm. is the sort of the idea more and more moving towards the idea that, well, there's not much point in inventing anything because we've got some bankers. They can do it all. Right. So it's quite ironic, really, that coming out of that C.P. Snow vision of the 19, late 50s, early 60s, that we've got it wrong, the division between science and the arts. Um, and, and we are essentially still stuck there. I mean, and I'd say that it hasn't been good for science and it hasn't been good for the arts. I mean, I listen to The Life Scientific on Radio 4. Mm -hmm. It's I think it's just a stunning, stunning programme. I think Jim Al-Khalili is like, it, it's brilliant. I just cannot be in praise of something more that here's somebody who's using what is a sort of artistic form. Tell me about your life and your work and your what matters to you, which is a sort of artistic form, in order for people to talk about how they reckon that electrons weren't the way that they think electrons are. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's incredible, but we don't rate it, do we? Do you, mm. do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. rated as a sort of, but, you you know, you do a wonderful programme about Wordsworth and it, it will go, everyone will go, it's incredible. You know, I never knew that Wordsworth was, I don't know. I just do think that I'm in a field which gets much more praise than somebody who might discover a... Mm -hmm or discover thing, invent things, that all that side of life, engineering, is not rated very much in this country, you know. Right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Um, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you, and we shall continue in the next episode. Thank you very much.